Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the, inherit the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your word that gives light, it gives life, and it gives understanding. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to your church. Help us to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen. So I had a conversation with someone a few years back. And what he was trying to explain to me is that Christians are increasingly finding themselves on the wrong side of history. And what they are really saying is that the world has moved on and history has judged the world, the Christian worldview, and has found it wanting. The God of the Bible are relics of our past. It's had its day. Now that day has come and it's gone. And when you think about it, the people who believe this, they believe that Christians are on the wrong side of history. They are often making an assumption. An assumption that they can know the future based off of current social trends that are current to us in the moment. And they are confident as to how history will unfold. But only God knows that. And our text today tells us that despite the optics of our cultural moment, the future belongs to God. Look, it doesn't matter how things might look or how the drama of history is unfolding before our very eyes. Psalm 2 speaks a word of encouragement to each one of us today to stand fast because the future belongs to God. And this psalm bids us to choose which voice will we listen to? Will we listen to the word of God and what God has to say? Or will we listen to the voice of those around us, around us. So let's look at this psalm. You see, both Hebrew and Christian tradition believe that Psalm 1 and 2 were originally one psalm. 
In Psalm 1, the writer contrasts the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked, and it bids us to choose. Psalm 1 says you're either for God or you're against him. Whereas in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 gives us a warning that there is a consequence to the choices that you make. And the choices you are, are you can either experience God's mercy or you can experience his judgment. Psalm 1 talks about God's authority over individuals, whereas Psalm 2 talks about God's authority over the nations. Now, the Old Testament context in which this psalm is written is possibly given reference to a coronation of a king, possibly David or Solomon or one of his sons. But God in this text is installing his new king on Zion and the natural response of the nations would be to conspire, would be to plot against this new king, to test them, to see how strong or how weak they are. So in this context, God is telling this new king, look, don't worry about their threats because you have my anointing. And I will not only protect you, but verse 8 says, I will give you victory over your enemies. You will smash them to pieces. But when you read the psalm, you realize that there is something else going on here. Look at verse 2. It says, the kings of the earth, they rise up and they take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. Two things to notice here. One, there was never a time in Israel's history where the kings of the earth were subject to David or Solomon or any subsequent king of Israel or Judah for that matter. So this must be talking about a future king and a future rebellion where all the nations will gather against this king. And also notice what kind of king it will be. It will be God's anointed. A term that gives reference to a future Messiah or Christ. So Psalm 2 is more than just Hebrew poetry about King David. Psalm 2 is pointing to the Messiah, one who is destined to one day rule the nations. And that's why Christians have historically interpreted this psalm as pointing to Jesus. Luke, for example, uses the title Christ or the anointed one to connect the themes of Psalm 2 to Jesus in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 27. Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4 provides a foundation for the disciples' understanding of their own recent persecutions. It helps them to understand the struggles that they were going through in their moment. They're looking at Psalm 2 and saying that this is what the scriptures foretold. The nations did gather against Jesus. They did conspire against his anointed one. But like those in Psalm 2, they did not prevail. Now, when we look at the psalm itself, Psalm 2 is broken down into four stanzas of three verses each. And these three verses, you see a dialogue between the Trinitarian God and man. Get this. In this verse, you see a dialogue between the Trinitarian God and man 
about who will determine the future. So in verses 1 to 3, you have rebellious man speaking. In verses 4 to 6, you have God speaking. In verses 7 to 9, you have the Son speaking. And in the the final verses, you have the voice of the Spirit warning rebellious man and the nations. So let's look at this. Let's look at the voice of rebellious man. Verse 1. Verse 1 starts out with a question that's simply asking, why are the nations raging, as one translation puts it? What's all the fuss about? And the image this paints for us is that of the leaders of the world coming together to plan a hostile takeover. So whoever this king is, he must be such a threat to global peace that it brings the nations of the world together. This is NATO responding to an international threat, but they are plotting and conspiring to overthrow the government of God. So here they are, this international coalition of world leaders banding together against the Lord and against his anointed. Notice what they are doing. Verse 1, they are plotting, conspiring against the Lord. Now what's interesting is that this word plot is the same Hebrew word which is translated, meditated in Psalm 1 verses 2. Look with me. The psalmist says the blessed person is the one who meditates on God's word day and night. And this word meditate is the same word that the psalmist is using in Psalm 2 for plot. So here's what I think the psalmist is trying to communicate. That while the godly are meditating on divine truth and listening to the voice of God, In Psalm 1, the nations are contemplating and they are meditating on how to overthrow the rule of God in Psalm 2. Look, this has been the story of humanity since the very beginning of time. Man has always plotted and schemed and sought ways to consign God to the dustbins of history. Now, let me also be clear that I don't think that this conspiracy is against a generic understanding of God. What I've discovered is that many people are usually comfortable with some concept of or idea of God. People often talk about a God of love. They talk about a God of compassion, a a God of tolerance. But it's the God of the Bible that people have a hard time with. And it's not that the God of the Bible isn't loving or compassionate, but he is also a God of truth. He is a God of holiness. He is a God of righteousness and justice. And he calls us to be just like him in all of these ways. Just look at Jesus, the son of God, love incarnate. He came in the flesh and he dwelt among us. And what did we do to him? We despised him. We beat him. We whipped him. And we nailed him to a cross of shame. And why? Because he told us how to live. 
He told us to love our enemies. He told us to forgive the unforgivable. He told us that life, true life, could only be found in him. You see, Jesus didn't come to affirm our individualistic quest to find purpose and meaning and morality apart from him. No, instead he came to show us that meaning and purpose and morality are only found in him. And we didn't like it. And we got rid of him. Why? Verse 3 tells us why. Because we don't want to feel owned by God. We don't want him dictating the terms of our lives. So we say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. You see, we're like little children looking up to heaven, defiantly shaking our fists at God and saying, you're not the boss of me. We're not fine with God's plan for marriage. We're not okay with God's plan for how we live our lives and what we do with our bodies. We don't like God telling us how to use our money, how to use our time and our resources. Look, we want to be free to live life on our own terms. We want to make the rules. Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, he points this out and he does this by tracing the intellectual roots of the expressive individualistic movement that we see in our culture today. And he traces it back to men like Karl Marx and Nietzsche. And he says that many of us are unaware of how much these men have shaped the modern notion of self and personhood. You see, both Marx and Nietzsche believe that the Christian God put restraints on human beings. And what they advocated for is that in order for us to be fully human, in order for us to be our full and authentic selves, we have to essentially kill God by sheer force of will. Remove God from scriptures from remove God, move the God of scriptures from our public spheres and our collective conscience. Remove God from our social and political process. Get rid of God. And humans will flourish. That was what they thought. That's what they believed. Because that's the only way man can flourish in progress. We have to kill God. And it's these ideas that are at war with the church. It's these ideas that have undermined the traditional Christian moral framework in our society and has convinced many that Christians are on the wrong side of history. God is dead as one billboard in London once stated years ago. So stop worrying and get on with the business of living your life on your own terms. That is the message of our culture. That's the message of our world. Break the shackles that God puts on you. History is on our side. This is the voice of rebellious man. But verses 4 to 6, it shows us the response of a sovereign God. 
Verses 4 to 6. What is God doing as the nations rage and the people plot and meditate on ways to bring him down? Well, let me tell you what God is not doing. God is not in heaven pacing the floors, biting his nails in confusion and afraid. And thank God that God has not been whisked away by the archangels to some undisclosed location for his safety. You know what God is doing as rebellious man is making its rage against God? God is where God has always been. He's ruling and he's sitting on the throne. That's where God is. You see, verse 4 tells us that he who sits in heavens, he laughs. That's what God is doing when rebellious man says, we don't need you anymore. We got this. The Bible says that God is in heaven. And he's looking down and he is laughing. And this is not a laughter of hilarity. This is a laughter of derision. You see, when God laughs, it's not funny. It's like me going up to Anthony Joshua, pushing him on the shoulders and saying, man, I will beat you up. Or like me doing that to Emmanuel. (laughs) Someone who's a mixed martial artist. You know, they would just look at me and they would laugh like, yeah, okay. That's what God is doing. Psalm 37, 14 tells us that the Lord laughs at the wicked because he sees that their day is coming. A day of judgment. A day of wrath. Look at verse 5. He will rebuke the nations in his anger and he will terrify them with his wrath, saying that I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You know what God's answer to rebellious man is? Deal with my son. You deal with him. He is the king in Zion. And how will this king deal with the rebellious hearts of men? He will triumph over their schemes. Paul tells us how he would do this in Colossians 2.15. Listen to what Paul says. He says that when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the indebtedness which stood against us and having disarmed the powers and authority. He made a public spectacle of them by triumphing. Over them by the cross. God's way of dealing with sinful and rebellious humanity is by the cross, my friends. While we were plotting and scheming against God, God was in the world reconciling lost man to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. He was giving his life for his enemies. In order that we might be free from sin's power and the spiritual authorities that kept us in rebellion against God. And he did this so that we don't have to experience the wrath of God. He removed 
the barriers. And this brings me to my third point. The third voice in this psalm. And it's the Son, the Son of God, declaring to sinful man his Father's inheritance to him. The Son says in verses 7 to 9, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Now, verse 7 is used in many New Testament passages to talk about the deity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, quotes this. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, and again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. And then Psalm or yeah, and then and then Psalm two to seven through nine has also been used in a lot of New Testament passages to also speak of the resurrection of Christ. Now this is important. Paul in Acts 13, 32 to 33 says that this is the good news that God has promised to our ancestors, and it has been fulfilled for us. Their children by raising Jesus as it is written. And then what does he do? He goes on to quote Psalm 2. He says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. He uses this psalm to justify and to clarify what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus is the risen son of God. And this, this is how we can be confident that God is in control of history and that the future belongs to him because God raised Jesus from the dead. In Acts chapter 4, 23 to 28, the early church read Psalm 2 as a reminder that God was in control even when the rulers gathered together to put Jesus to death. Rulers of this world and people of this world, they wanted to remove him from the pages of history. But Peter says that they were only doing what God had intended in purpose before the foundations of the world. But God proved that he was in control despite man's attempts to get rid of him by raising Jesus from the dead. You see, the resurrection forever proves the outcome of history. It's no doubt. Jesus wins. He wins. The nations are his inheritance. This is what the son says. The father declared to him in verses 8 to 9. The father said to the son, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the end of the earth, your possessions. The nations that conspire or rage against God are God's gift to his son, the Messiah, Jesus. They are his inheritance. This means is that Jesus is not just king of the Jews, but Jesus is king of kings. Jesus is Lord 
of lords. The nations belong to him. The UK belongs to him. The nations of Africa, Europe, Eastern and Southern Asia, the Pacific Islands, the US, all of it belongs to Jesus. And one day those who rage against him, the psalmist says, will be broken with a rod of iron. Verse 9 says he would dash them to pieces like pottery. I want you to think. Think of a vase. A costly vase. A vase of great value. And it's just sitting on your table. It's the masterpiece in your living room. And one day it gets knocked over. The vase hits the floor and it shatters into thousands of little pieces. Now think of the contrasting picture. One day it's there on the table and it looks so strong and so sturdy. And then judgment falls. The table is knocked. Tips over. Then you see just how fragile it was. Then you see how easy it is for it to break into thousands of pieces. Well, that's the kind of image that we have here. You see, the world seems so strong, seems so confident in its ideas and its godlessness and its godless way of living, so confident in its ingenuity and ability to solve world problems without God. And it can seem intimidating. We can easily be fooled into thinking that the world's ideas are right and that the Bible is wrong. What this image shows us is that there is a judgment that's coming. And those who refuse to turn to him will be shattered into broken pieces. See, God is the Lord of history. And the future belongs to him. So we've heard the voice of rebellious man. We've seen God's response. We've heard the son declare that it's a done deal. All the nations belong to him. And that brings us to the final voice in this song. That's the Spirit warning us. Verses 10 to 11. He says, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. In other words, you cannot win against God and against his anointed one. Instead, serve the Lord with fear. In other words, humble yourself before God. It's futile persisting in our pride. It is a fool's errand that will only lead to defeat. You can't win. Like my mom used to always tell me in my rebellious years, she would say, son, your arms are too short to box with God. You can't win against him. So what is the response that the son 
or the psalmist is calling us to. Verse 12. We are to kiss the sun. This is not a kiss of romance. This is not a Portuguese kiss. You know, in Portugal, they kiss you on the cheek as a greeting. It's not that kind of kiss. This is a kiss of submission. This is a defeated general or king kneeling down to kiss the hand and feet of a conquering king. Here, when the scriptures tells us to kiss the son, it's bidding us to surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's calling us to build our lives on the rock who is Jesus, and he is our firm foundation. You see, GCB, the only hope for rebellious mankind is to surrender their lives to Jesus. And the consequence of our surrender is the opposite of wrath. It's blessing. Look at verse 12. Blessed, happy are those who find refuge in him. This is the good news in this text. Is that those who surrender their lives to Christ will find refuge and safety in his arms. They will find safety in his embrace. Kiss the sun or face the wrath of God. And like the vase be shattered to pieces. The voice of this world would tell you to break free from God. The very God who loves you. And he gave his life for you. But no matter how often you hear the voice of man telling you to free yourself from the restraints of God's word and his love for you. Don't lose confidence in the gospel. Don't lose your confidence. Listen to the voice of God saying that the future belongs to him and to his anointed one. And as long as you stay with King Jesus, you are on the right side of history. No matter how things may look. Because Jesus proved it when he raised his son from the dead. Whose voice will you listen to? Let's just pause for a moment. Just meditate on these words from Psalm 2. There are a lot of competing voices out there, church. A lot of people who will tell you that you will be free. If you just break the shackles of God's restraints, but the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Hallelujah. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. 
Whose voice will you listen to?